1: New Books in Southeast Asian Studies is supported by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre, building on the expertise of over 300 specialists at the University of Sydney for research, education and partnerships in Southeast Asia. For details about upcoming events and opportunities, visit sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney hyphen southeast Asia centre. That's centre spelled C-E-N-T-R-E. And by the Griffith Asia Institute, an internationally renowned institution For policy relevant research on the politics, economics, societies, and cultures of Asia and the Pacific. For more information, email gai at griffith.edu.au or visit the website griffith.edu.au forward slash Asia Institute. That's Asia Institute as one word.
0: Hey, thank God we get the turn to vote
1: In 2010, Guillaume Rosenberg published a remarkable book in French on four immortals and their disciples centered on a monastery in central Burma. That book, which is the second in a series of four studies planned on cults and virtuosity in Burmese Buddhism, was in 2015 released in English by the University of Hawaii Press as The Immortals, Faces of the Incredible in Buddhist Burma. The book's translator, Ward Killer, is here to speak with us about it. Ward is an associate professor of anthropology at the University of texas at Austin. he'll be speaking with me nick cheeseman a fellow at the australian national university's college of asia and the pacific and host of the new books in southeast asian studies channel of the new books network ward thank you for coming on the show to talk about the immortals it's a pleasure who are these incredible immortals after whom the book is named
0: the immortals are called Weisa in Burmese. There's sometimes the term is sometimes translated as wizard. There's a variety of names, but it refers to beings that were at one point humans like the rest of us, but by dint of their extraordinary ascetic rigors and the accumulation of merit, probably over a series of lifetimes, they have been able to pass into a distinct realm wherein they remain in waiting. So they are not yet in a position to pass into nirvana, but they are qualified to do so. And when the next Buddha appears, then they will be in a position to enter nirvana. In the meantime, some people believe that You can appeal to them and they will help you out in one way or another. As a supplicant turning to them, you shouldn't be seeking mere material reward. You should be seeking something more noble. But the idea is that they can help you increase your store of merit, increase your Buddhist readiness to make your way toward nirvana yourself. So they are sort of like saints, but Guillaume Rosenberg has chosen to translate the Burmese word as immortals.
1: So if they are not human, what are they and what is this distinct realm that they occupy?
0: They were human and now it isn't exactly that they aren't human, it's just that they are in this kind of waiting state. Between the human lives that they long ago ended and the future state of nirvana, which is kind of dissolution of self that only the most accomplished Buddhists are able to attain.
1: What are some of their abilities?
0: Mostly what they do is meditate, so they are terrifically accomplished meditators. The kinds of things that they can do are to help people who want to progress. They can probably do things like make you invulnerable to any kind of attack, or they can give you great strength, whether or not they can actually bring you prosperity. I think that's a point of some disagreement among their followers, but certainly they can do for you whatever they might choose to do on your behalf if you can win their attention and win
1: their favor. The book is concerned with four specific immortals. Who are they? Where are they located?
0: All of them are on a special mythical mountain where they're in this waiting stage, and they are of varying ages, one well over a thousand years, they can appear in our world if they so choose. And so one of the many fabulous elements of this book, and I use the word advisedly, is that they do sometimes appear before human followers and carry out remarkable feats to the amazement of the crowd. So that's another one of their skills. For example, they fly into the second story room in which people have gathered to see them and then they can perform their magical feats once they're there. Guillaume Rosenberg tells us that people are assembled in a room and the waysa come in through the window. In other words, they have flown to the window and then they just come in the window. No one is permitted to leave the room when the waysa are coming and going. Everybody assumes that the way they get there is by flying there.
1: The fact that these four Weisar appear in the flesh is unusual. Why is that?
0: There are only some people in Burma who accept the idea that Weisar would ever wish to appear in the flesh. A great many Burmese Buddhists would say they are in their own realm. They do not choose to appear in our everyday world, so they reject the possibility. However, this particular cult that Guillaume Rosenberg has written up here, the medium who represents them insists that these four wisat least they do indeed choose to appear in our world.
1: Where is the monastery located that they frequent?
0: It's in central Burma, a town on the Irrawaddy River. It's not a place I've ever been to, but Guillaume tells stories in the book about having visited there and attended some of these events.
1: Did he himself witness the flights through the windows of these beings?
0: Yes, he did. Now, if I can anticipate your next question, he does not choose ever to pose the question, but what really happened. He does not consider that his remit. He just reports what goes on.
1: Okay, we may say more about that later in the discussion. (laughs) For now, let's restrict ourselves to the question of why did he decide to write a book, first of all, about immortals in general, and then about this particular group.
0: Gil Rosenberg is fascinated by the many different ways that Buddhism is practiced in Burma. And so, as you mentioned, this is part of a tetralogy of books. This is just a particularly intriguing way in which certain Burmese Buddhists act upon their beliefs. And so he gives us this wing of Burmese Buddhism, while readily admitting that many Burmese Buddhists would look askance at the whole notion that... Wesa would mingle in human affairs as much as people in this cult claim. In a way, Guillaume is just giving us a complete picture of all the different ways that people can practice Buddhism in Burma. Of course, the fact is that once he became aware of this cult, the history of this particular medium, really quite important and powerful members of the Burmese bureaucracy who became followers, Guillaume was obviously very deeply intrigued and chose to set about doing research
1: on the subject. What attracted you to the book? Why did you decide to translate it?
0: I had met Guillaume Rosenberg on a few occasions, since we're both anthropologists, both interested in Burma, and there were in the 80s and 90s and the, even the early 2000s, very few anthropologists working in Burma. So we had encountered each other a, a few times. I had been asked to translate two articles of his for journals, which I had enjoyed doing. And then there was a conference about Burma held in Marseille a number of years ago. And in the course of it, Guillaume turned to me and just said, I'll put the question to you very brusquely. Would you be willing to translate this book? And I said, oh, well, gee, I had never thought about doing such an extensive translation. But looking it over, I thought it's not going to be easy, but it's going to be fascinating.
1: So I agreed to do so. Not easy but fascinating is in some ways perhaps also a description of the reading of some parts of the book. (laughs) So I can only imagine what it meant to translate it. Let's dig into those contents a bit more. And it is really a wonderfully and engagingly written book, but also one that is quite formidable in its breadth and depth and intensity of content. The first chapter is titled A Belief in Believing. What's the difference between these two words that the author wants to draw our attention to?
0: Rosenberg wants to say that we too easily in anthropology and maybe in religious studies talk about people's beliefs as though there's just something that sits there and that if you are a believer you just embrace all of these ideas and that's an end of it. And he says that of course is not the case at all. That people in Burma like people everywhere else hear about certain beings and certain kinds of events but they want some sort of evidence they don't just accept. They don't simply believe because they're told they should believe. They want to investigate. They want to check. They want to see. They want to be convinced. So Guillaume relates the stories of various people he met, many of whom said, I thought this was all ridiculous. I discounted all this. This was this was, properly speaking, incredible. But, and then they would tell a story wherein they were, however, reluctantly obliged to come to believe in the particular phenomena surrounding this particular cult. Guillaume Rosenberg, in a way, wants to demonstrate his respect for the people he worked with, to say these are not silly, superstitious, backward pumpkins. These are, in many cases, highly educated people who applied their critical faculties to their experience, but were brought finally to accept the claims being made for this cult.
1: Is there a particular story or instance of somebody recounting their experiences where they go from a kind of cynicism to getting sufficient evidence to become a disciple that has stuck with you?
0: Yes, in fact, I think it's just about the first story that Guillaume introduces us to all of the book with, which is about a government official who is altogether skeptical and really wants to put a stop to all this nonsense that he hears about going on in a village. So he's riding out to the village, and suddenly it turns out that one of the Wesa is actually landing on the top of the vehicle that he's riding in. He can't actually see the wayside, but he can experience it pounding on the roof and making its presence felt, and this is really quite convincing. It it introduces the first seeds of, let's say, the possibility of believing, then further experiences once he gets there, persuade him further. But just the story about riding along and being made aware of the Huesa's presence, I think, is really vivid and quite an interesting way to get us all involved in turning those pages.
1: As indeed I did. One of the talents of the author is that at certain points he asks questions directly that we ourselves are by then asking because <laughs> we've been right. thinking through these stories. So at a point in this chapter, he asks directly, is this magic or religion? How does he answer uh-huh. that question?
0: This is a long-standing issue in anthropology how do you distinguish between magic and religion? And Malnowski wrote a famous book called Magic, Science, and Religion. There are various ways of parsing all of that. I think in the end, Guillaume Rosenberg doesn't want to accept these foreign labels, these distinctions that we make. He wants to be true to the opinions of people in Burma and the kinds of distinctions that they make. So it's a question of what is believable. And if it's believable, then it deserves the dignity of being considered a part of the Buddhist religion.
1: You mentioned the anthropological literature, and we won't dwell on this, but at one point in this chapter specifically, he also turns to one of his predecessors, Malford Spiro, whose work will be familiar to a great many people who have studied Myanmar. Right. What's his beef with Spiro? Spyro
0: wrote a great deal on Burma, having done fieldwork in a village about an hour outside of Mandalay in the late 50s, early 60s, if I remember right. Spyro's take on Pretty much everything he wrote about was deeply influenced by the Freudian tradition, the psychological tradition, culture and personality had been very big in American anthropology in the 1950s. So Spyro is always very ready to give interpretations that from this vantage point would be called psychologically reductionist. And Guillaume Rosenberg will have no truck with any of that. He is respectful of the extraordinary amount of information that Spyro gathered and recounts in his several books about Burma. But Rosenberg does not buy into, as I say, the psychological reductionist reading that Spyro gives of the
1: material. The second chapter concerns disciples and the fashioning of the cult. Who are these disciples and what are they getting out of this relationship?
0: There are a number of different kinds of disciples. There are civil servants, there are other kinds of people. Way back when the cult started, no doubt, there were a number of people in the village that turned to this medium. Although, as an aside, I'd say that People living in the village perhaps became skeptical, but people from further away did not become so skeptical. There are some women, there are some people of Chinese descent. It's quite a mix of people that are drawn to this cult. I don't think we can generalize, there isn't a particular kind of personality or a particular kind of social position that inclines people to become enthusiasts for this cult. It's really quite a range of people. Although I would say, as I, as I mentioned, that there are a fair number of Burmese Buddhists who would reject all of this out of hand and say it's superstition or even that it's chicanery and they'll have nothing to do with it.
1: In your role as translator, was there a particular disciple that may not be indicative, but nevertheless to whom you were drawn?
0: You know, I just keep thinking about this uh, military official. You get the feeling that he was a very sympathetic figure, that Guillaume Rosenberg really felt quite fond of him. And you just get the sense that not only was he a truly generous person, but also a very thoughtful one. Uh, getting to know his experience, the ways in which he he overcame his original scepticism and became a supporter. That seems particularly personalised and therefore particularly engaging and, and even ingratiating, I'd say, as you read through the book.
1: What keeps him in the cult? You say that, well, initially there's a certain amount of cynicism, evidence is required. He overcomes the cynicism through perhaps on more than one occasion presentations of supernatural feats. Why does he remain decade after decade?
0: In a way, I think the question is why does anybody invest deeply in their religious beliefs? I think in some ways, of course, the answer has to be individuated for each person's particular desires or particular wants. At the same time, I think it is characteristic of an aging Burman male. To get to the point where he is confronting the eventual loss of his powers, of his status in the world, of the secular authority he may wield, and he realizes that he wants to be able to find a way to prepare himself for what's coming. The cult, in promising him a kind of special access, a special path to a better future life and eventually nirvana, I think that exercises great appeal for him.
1: But couldn't he simply go and obtain this kind of satisfaction through a conventional monastery?
0: I think it's because of this dramatic evidence that this is a point at which getting access to the wayside is remarkably possible. Forgive me a moment for making a very broad statement broader than anything that probably Guillaume would want to say. It just seems to me that when people engage in religious behavior, they are trying to see where there is a great concentration of power to which they can connect themselves. And then, of course, the question is, where do you think such concentrations of power lie? Clearly, he thinks that this cult offers him the prospect of connecting to a singularly potent concentration of power, a kind of node of power. And so he is much more
1: excited
0: about this option than just your average monastery that you could find anywhere all over Burma.
1: The last question with regards to this chapter is, what does alchemy have to do with this?
0: Alchemy is believed by a great many Burmese, that it's something by which you can attain special powers, and that the wesa these immortals can actually help you attain these special powers. And so you have both lay people and monks trying very hard by various chemical processes. They're trying to create this special material that will enable them to become Wesa and to attain all these magical powers. As a matter of fact, the cover of the book has a photograph of a monk with um, goggles on, and he's using a blower, bellows in front of a fire. He's engaging in this kind of alchemical practice. And if I can tell a story out of my own fieldwork, I had this book out. The cover of the French edition has the same photograph. In the monastery, I was living in Mandalay. And a monk who was a wonderful informant happened to see it on my desk. And he said, that can't be in Burma, because he didn't believe that any proper Buddhist monk would engage in that kind of behavior. I said, no, no, no! of course it took place in Burma. Look at the color of the robe. He had to admit that the color of the robe was the kind of deep crimson characteristic of Burmese monks, but not other monks in Southeast Asia. So he realized It's true. This is really taking place in Burma. But he was very disapproving.
1: Ward, we'll pause here for a moment for a sponsor's message. And when we return, let's talk a bit more about the remaining chapters of the book and then briefly discuss the remarkable style in which the book is written and also then the challenges that it posed for you as a translator. New Books in Southeast Asian Studies has the generous support of the ANU Southeast Asia Institute, connecting you with the Australian National University's wealth of expertise in the politics, languages, societies, and economics of Southeast Asia through research, teaching, events, and more. To get details, visit seasiainstitute.anu.edu.au. That's S-E-Asia Institute as one word. Welcome back to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, where today's guest is Ward Keeler, translator of *The Immortals: Faces of the Incredible* in Buddha Sperma, which was originally written in French by Guillaume Rosenberg. Ward, you were working on the translation of this book as you were doing fieldwork for your own book, *The Traffic and Hierarchy: Masculinity and Its Others* in, in Sperma. and we'll be talking about that book later in the year. So, congratulations for getting that published. I think it's an extraordinary feat in itself that you were. Ju- translation and work. In fact,
0: it was truly a pleasure to be able to translate this. And I have to say, I had not read the book all the way through when I started translating. And it was so much fun to do that I decided I was not going to do so. I was going to let myself be surprised every page, every day. And that just made it all the more fun.
1: And did the work on the one inform how you worked on the other?
0: Yes, although, of course, I was living in an altogether orthodox and correct and rather strict monastery in Mandalay. So part of what I was feeling was Guillaume found such wonderful characters and wild things to look into. I felt a great deal of the envy. At the same time, of course, it did raise questions that I would put to the monks that I was talking to.
1: Well let's turn back to those remarkable things that he turned up and of course later in the year we will have the chance to talk about what you found in Mandalay. The third chapter of his book is on possession and concentrates on a couple of mediums. Tell us about those people.
0: There was a young woman who became a medium early in the 1950s in a village and she aroused a certain amount of interest but before too long a young man who was something of a rapscallion and kind of a rowdy and nobody thought he was going to amount to much he started Becoming possessed by Wesa. It was he eventually who became the focus of the cult and who continued to be their medium for decades thereafter. A peculiar aspect of the experience of reading the book is that you forget, because there's all this talk about the four different Wesa, they're all actually becoming known to people through this one medium. But, as I say, Guillaume Rosenberg is nothing but scrupulous in his respect for his informants. So he doesn't draw our attention to the fact that we are actually learning about these four ways through the one medium.
1: And who is this medium, Saturday's son? How is it that it is he who was selected to be the medium?
0: You know, there really is no good explanation because powerful beings choose the person they wish to make their vessel. That's simply the way things are. As I say, since this young man was not considered admirable or reliable, I think it was a source of some surprise to people that he should have been chosen. Now, I've mentioned a couple of times the fact that many Burmese Buddhists would be quite skeptical of the entire cult. One way that, in a sense, the cult is protected from charges of heterodoxy stems from the fact that when the Wesa appear, the lessons that they convey are simple, basic Buddhist lessons. There's nothing surprising, there's nothing unusual about what they prescribe to people as the way to be good Buddhists. So although the circumstances in which these lessons are conveyed seems highly unusual. In fact, the content is altogether garden variety of Burmese Buddhism.
1: And the manner in which those lessons are delivered also lacks ritual and dramatization. The medium is a transmitter.
0: That's right. The medium simply conveys what the Waysa wish to have conveyed. There is no elaborate staging. There's no elaborate choreography. The the medium himself is, in a sense, perfectly ordinary. And the important thing to bear in mind is that this is all in spectacular contrast to an altogether different kind of cult, which is much better reported in the anthropological literature by Spyro, by another French anthropologist who was actually the supervisor of Rosenberg's dissertation, Benedict claire That other cult is the cult of the nut, spirits who have a great array of personalities. There are all sorts of stories about what happened to them during their human lives. Their mediums are, for the most part, trans women, trans men. They have very elaborate costumes. There's all kinds of singing. There's dancing. There's drinking. There's all kinds of suspect behavior. They're kind of a scandal. People turn to them for all kinds of help with their business. And there's all kinds of money exchange going on and so on. And the authorities, both Government authorities and Orthodox Buddhist authorities are very down on that cult. But this cult of the Wesa, Saturday Sun, as their medium, is altogether different from the Not cult, precisely because it is so undramatized.
1: Let's turn to the remaining chapters. The fourth chapter is on invulnerability, the quest for it. Whose quest is that and how is it achieved?
0: Invulnerability is a very big concern for a great many people in Burma. In fact, it's true all over Southeast Asia. The group that Guillaume Rosenberg pays the greatest attention to is a group that combines martial arts exercises with various practices, ingesting magical writing and so on that they believe grants them invulnerability. They Travel about giving demonstrations of the remarkable powers and physical powers which they attribute ultimately to spiritual powers. This is affiliated with the cult, though there's always a problem that if there is a leader of a kind of subgroup, is he going to set himself up as an alternative to the head of the group, such as Saturday Sun? So there's a bit of tension in all of this, but the principle that defines the organization of this group is of loyalty to a teacher which is very much insisted upon. That's characteristic of a great many relationships in
1: Burma. And the leader of that group, who or what was he before he took on this rather unusual role? Who does he attract to participate in feats of invulnerability.
0: He attracts a number of young men. Like a lot of young men in Burma, they are underemployed. They're casting about for some way to assure their own livelihood. They're looking for a leader upon whom they can depend. And someone like this man who can promise them special physical powers, that's very convincing, very persuasive to a lot of young Burmese males. The sorts of things they do are fairly elaborate forms of gymnastics, but they can also do things like break bricks or have bricks broken on their heads. Actions which you would expect to cause them grave physical harm, turns out to uh, not to harm them in any way. And those are displays of invulnerability that probably are familiar to some Westerners in demonstrations of various East Asian martial arts. I've seen the same sort of thing in Indonesia actually, but this appeals to a lot of Southeast Asians notions of a kind of spiritual power that is more effective, more powerful than mere physical strength.
1: The chapter closes with a terrifying question. What is that terrifying question and why does it have to be asked?
0: The question really is whether people collaborate in their own subjugation. The question, of course, is a terribly significant one for Burma because Burma, after all, suffered under a military dictatorship that started in 1962 when General Win took power. And continued really pretty much without interruption until 2012, so long after this book was originally written. The question, I think, is a terribly pertinent one, but one that strikes us highly educated outsiders with greater force than it might strike a lot of people in Burma. I hope I'm not reading too much into what Guillaume has proffered by way of analysis. But the fact is that the pattern by which people like young Burmese males cast about for powerful figures to whom they can submit and enter into an exchange relationship highly unequal, but one that will bring about their benefit, both material and emotional, that pattern is absolutely thoroughgoing in Southeast Asian societies. And it, of course, opens on to real forms of abuse because there are really no sanctions. It's very difficult for people in subordinate positions to rein in people in superordinate positions. There is, yes, a certain moral rhetoric by which the powerful should feel themselves constrained to fulfill their obligations, to look out for the well-being of their subordinates. But it's actually very hard to put into practice. I think Jung Rosenberg is pointing to the fact that something like this troop of young men in their submission to their leader look very much like a kind of model for patterns that have, among other things, enabled the military, not just in Burma, but elsewhere in Southeast Asia, to grab and maintain power.
1: The book ends abruptly. Both you and the series editor alert the reader at the start of the book to the fact that it is going to be an unorthodox read, and indeed it is. So I invite you to say something more about the style in which the book is written, as well as that unusual ending point. The book
0: is very unusual because it's not written the way that a standard anthropological monograph would be written. That is to say, Guillaume doesn't simply give you a great deal of ethnographic data, which he then analyzes with reference to anthropological theory, with his interpretations, with his outsider's perspective on what the natives do, if I may put it that way. He decided he was going to adopt an altogether different rhetorical strategy, which is that he relates to you the process by which he learned about the cult, and he's going to tell you what went through his mind as he reflected upon the information that he was gathering. There are times in which he draws back and he muses upon earlier anthropological literature, on various other kinds of sources that have informed his reflection, but he is not going to give you the cut and dried, here's the material, here's the analysis, that is much more characteristic of the anthropological writing. He was certainly influenced in making this decision by all of the literature Called the Crisis in Representation, which has been on the minds of anthropologists since the late 1980s. The Crisis in Representation, among other things, criticized anthropologists for writing their monographs as though they were invisible, omniscient. Observers, So they never had to reveal their own experiences. As a matter of fact, in the original French, Guillaume refers to himself in the third person. The University of Hawaii press editor and the press's board decided that, in English at least, that came across as rather too mannered and decided not to stick with that rhetorical device. But it gives you an idea of the way that Guillaume wanted to situate himself as someone who was participating in the events that he relates, along with everyone else. And it makes particular demands on the reader because he's not telling you, okay, here's what it all means. He's saying, here are some reflections that... Were generated by participating in
1: these events. And he leaves you hanging.
0: Yes, absolutely. You can draw your inferences, stimulated no doubt by his inferences, but in the end, you now know what went on at this ritual, and so you can choose to make it what you will.
1: You were of course working from French to English, but both you and the author also are deeply familiar with Burmese and the Burmese lexicon is integral to the interpretations that are offered throughout the book. How is that a part of the work of translation in a sense having three languages at play?
0: Let me first say that Guillaume's Burmese is terrific, better than mine by quite a bit. He actually first went to Burma as a kind of alternate military service, something that is quite easily done by young Frenchman. So he went and taught French at the Alliance Française in Rangoon in the eighties. I think he was there for two years, and then he went back and did further field work. But I should say something about his French. The book is beautifully written, but it's written in a magisterial style, which I very much appreciate, but which is not really contemporary French expository style. Expository French prose is already a challenge to render into English because you can have sentences without a subject in French, that's perfectly acceptable, and you can have very long sentences. Guillaume's sentences are unusually long, even for French. Part of my job was to actually unstitch these very long sentences and try to render them into an English that would be readable, as I say, it was a challenge. Fortunately, Guillaume's English is actually very good. So when I sent him my translation, he went through it very carefully. And there were places where I had gotten things exactly wrong. Let me say in self-defense, there weren't a great many of them, but there were a certain number. So I'm glad that Guillaume could see where I had not been true to his actual meaning.
1: You said earlier on that you yourself didn't go to the monastery where so many of these events occurred. Why not?
0: Well, for one thing, Saturday Sun had left the area, he'd moved to a monastery in Mandalay, actually. But I felt like I didn't want to be an interloper. I felt like Yom's representation of all of this was what I wanted to be my point of entry. And it just seemed more appropriate to leave it that way.
1: On top of everything else you've been doing, translation, field fieldwork for your own book, you've also been working, I understand, on a new textbook for learners of Burmese. So as we're in a translation mode for this (laughs) episode, would you like to talk about that new book briefly?
0: When I was doing my recent longer stint of fieldwork in Burma, which was 2011, 2012, my Burmese was pretty good, but it certainly could use improvement. So I asked a Burmese school principal if he could recommend someone who could serve as my tutor. He recommended a young man, a teacher at his school. So I met with him and he was very personable. And I said, a couple of times a week, let's meet, write me a dialogue, just Burmese, speaking to Burmese, and record it, and then I'll use that for my own study, and I'll ask you questions at our next meeting. He started writing me dialogues, and they were terrific. They were so lively and so true to Burmese conversation with all different kinds of characters, I thought, this is just too good to keep to myself. The world needs an intermediate Burmese textbook. And so since I wrote a textbook for the Javanese language a long time ago, I thought, this would be great. I will annotate these conversations in the same way that I annotated conversations in the Javanese textbook. So I started in while I was doing my fieldwork. Then an American student came through Mandalay at a certain point, and he wanted to start studying Burmese. I gave him the standard textbook for Burmese, written by John O'Kell, who is the master of Burmese teaching to Anglophones. But the student was actually not happy with those materials, and I said, "Well, as a matter of fact, I have some old materials that I started writing a long time ago at the beginning level. So if you'd like to use these, you can look them over." And he was quite enthusiastic about that. My technique was to use no transliteration whatsoever. So you learn the syllabary and you start learning Burmese words and Burmese pronunciation, and then eventually a Burmese sentence structure, but only what you yourself can already read and write. Because of the students' enthusiasm, I thought, okay, go for broke. I'm going to start with a beginning textbook and go all the way through the intermediate level. It turned out to be an enormous project. I had no idea how much time I would end up putting into this because after I finished that field work, I then three summers in a row, three northern summers in a row, with this young Burmese man, he and I put on intensive Burmese language courses in Rangoon and tried out our materials. And that, of course, required writing a lot of drills, and I did a lot of uh, revisions of what I had written and so on. We amassed quite a bit of material, actually, and now they are under consideration at NUS Press in Singapore. So I hope they will eventually appear.
1: So do I, and I'm sure so do many other people who will be really pleased to get new materials for learning Burmese, and especially materials that already sound like they've been put through the ringer.
0: Let me say one more thing about it. That, Like in the case of my Javanese textbook, I wanted to demonstrate that learning a foreign language is an anthropological exercise. Mm -hmm. It's not simply a linguistic exercise. That What you have to learn to do when you learn a foreign language is to learn to want to say what people say to each other in that language, which I think is what makes language learning fun. You're not just translating from English into Burmese, you're actually learning to say the phrases and maybe even have the sentiments that Burmese have as you get deeper and deeper into the language.
1: Ward Killer, on that sage note, I'd like to thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me about your translation of the Immortals Faces of the Incredible in Buddhist Burma and I really do look forward to having you back on the show later in the year to discuss your traffic in hierarchy.
0: Well, thank you very much. It's really been a pleasure.
1: And thanks as as always to our listeners on New Books in Southeast Asian Studies. If you were interested in this episode, you'll probably enjoy listening to Luke Thompson talking with Eric Braun on the New Books in Buddhist Studies channel about the Birth of Insight Meditation Modern Buddhism and the Burmese monk Lady Sayadaw, or the talented Carla Napi on New Books in Science, Technology and Society talking with Lawrence Principe about the secrets of alchemy. Interviews on these and so many other related books are available to you right now via the new books network website or itunes
0: hey like